Hi, and welcome to Decoding AQ, helping you to learn the tools, mindsets, and actions to thrive in an ever-changing world. Hi, and welcome to our next episode of Decoding AQ. I have with me today a very interesting lady, and it it really intrigued me by your company name, Suzanne. So Suzanne Lucas joins us from your company called The Evil HR Lady. So welcome. Thank you. Happy to be here. And uh, as it describes, you help people have great careers and managers be better managers. And, uh, you know, you're a writer. You craft five to six articles a week uh, all around that subject of sort of career growth, managing people and navigating sort of difficult situations. And I was uh, reading that you get nearly half a million views for some of these articles. So no mean feat across where they get syndicated and published of all of these pieces. So it's a real pleasure to have you on our, as a guest. Well, I'm happy to be here. So um, I just want to start, where did the evil HR lady come from? I'm sure you've been asked it before, but share us where the origination came from, Suzanne. Well, when I started writing, I was working for a big pharmaceutical company and pharma is very, um, conservative in their views, at least, you know, this was back in 2006. So a long time ago. And I knew that I needed to do things anonymously. Um, I actually knew that my personal boss would be okay with it, but I knew that some of the other people in HR would not be. And I just didn't want to go down that path, you know? Um, And so I needed a, a pseudonym and I thought about how do people perceive HR? And do they think, oh my gosh, I love HR people. No, they don't, they hate us. Um, (laughs) And there's a lot of reasons for that. Some of them are well-deserved by um, poor performers in the profession. And some of them are just the function of the job. Um, You know, if your boss calls you into the office, and sitting there is the HR lady, how is that conversation gonna go? Yeah, the heart rate certainly increases for sure. Exactly. And it's not because she's bad at HR, it's just that no one calls us in to say, hey Ross, just wanted to let you know, good job on that presentation yesterday. You know? (laughs) Yeah. So we're there for a lot of the bad things and it gives us that reputation. But in, in all fairness, there are plenty of incompetent HR people out there. Um, that and I guess, have- you know, your kind of background and history from, you know, studying over in the States in Utah and New York, and then, as you said, a career in HR and in big pharma. And, you know, there's a very big difference between being a HR person inside a huge entity Uh, with lots of complexity, lots of resources at hand. And then the challenges of maybe smaller organizations, smaller businesses, and even, you know, solopreneurs, people who are by themselves. And I'd just be interested if you can take us through your journey of a bit of that career, some of the insights you had inside big organizations of HR, and then maybe what's changed and what you see changing in kind of a solo world of HR as more independent and solo practitioners in that area? 
Yeah, there's a huge difference um, between the the big HR and the solo practitioners. And I started my career in big HR. I started actually at a supermarket chain. Yeah, food chain. Um, um, for those of you on the East Coast of the U.S., you know it, you love it. It's called Wegmans. It's I'm headed to the U.S. this summer and I will get off the plane, I will get my rental car and then I will go to Wegmans. Like that's the kind of store it is. It's the best store ever. And um, I know precisely what I'm buying. Anyway, (laughs) (laughs) I have my trip planned out. But one of the reasons why they're so awesome is the way they treat their employees. And every year they're in the top 10 of the fortunes top companies to work for and that's where I got my training was from them and one of the things that they did is they required everybody to work in the store now I was hired as an analyst Um, my degrees are in politics um, but I can do statistics well I could do statistics I haven't done statistics for a long time so I don't do statistics anymore (laughs) But 20 years ago, I could do statistics and that's why I got the job. Um, So I was totally corporate in a cube. Um, You know, I was doing data analysis all day. They said, it doesn't matter. You've got to go spend time in the store. And I stocked shelves and I did produce and I worked in seafood, which is disgusting because I don't like fish. Um, but I did it anyway. I sold pizza. I ran a cash register. Um, I worked in every department except for the bakery. And the only reason I didn't work in the bakery is because I had to get back to my real um, job. But in doing that, even as an analyst, I was suddenly like, okay, this makes sense as to why the turnover in produce is higher than in other departments, because produce is extremely labor intensive. Because unlike, you know, canned foods that you just put out on the shelf in the morning and then the night crew comes in and and restocks it, produce, you're there all day. You're interacting with the customers. You're constantly solving problems. Like, I I would have never understood that as a grocery store shopper, Um, but put me on the floor for a couple of days, you know, picking through strawberries and, and all of that. And you realize, oh my gosh, this department is harder than the other ones. That type of thing really um, helped me to understand from my data analysis and from the reports that I gave, I could give context um, to it. So I was really blessed to start my HR career in such a fantastic company. Um, And then I moved to pharma, um, which Mm -hmm. was big. And there also, I was blessed with an incredible HR team. And one of the things that we had, and I just actually was talking about this on LinkedIn last week, um, we had in-house employment attorneys. And so when I had a question, I could email Mary Beth, our attorney, and she would literally respond within two hours, usually within 15 minutes, I still don't know how she did it. I actually tagged her in a post about this on LinkedIn. And then another one of her employees, um, who I don't know at all because it was a different company, commented. And she's like, I know, how does she do that? Like, this was the environment that I was in. And there's all the support. Now I work 
by myself. I own my own company. Um, I don't have that. I don't have the mentors. I don't have someone saying, yes, you should go work in the store for two weeks and figure out what you do. I don't have a a Mary Beth who can answer all of my questions in, in 30 seconds. So what you do when you're a solo practitioner is you build these networks. Mm -hmm. And that's so important. And that's one of the reasons I run a Facebook group called Evil HR Lady. (laughs) Got 7,500 people in there, most of whom are HR practitioners and a lot of whom are solo HR practitioners. And what we are is your team members. So when you have a question about a difficult employee situation, or you have a question about how to administer this program or something, you can come there and I've got 7,500 experienced people that can give you an answer. And um, so I just went ahead and I built this community for people like me who work by themselves now. And I think that's a really interesting kind of evolution that's happening in many industries where you know, specialists work as a cog in a machine, but they have the machine around them. You know, they have all of these other moving parts that have capabilities to provide the service or value in the end. And it needs all of those things to function, yet there's elements that humans like and don't like about that, right? And then when we come out, how we adapt ourselves to to function, to be able to find the capabilities or answers that we might not have, a good network is a key part of that, isn't it? And it doesn't happen by accident. You know, you have to be really intentional to create the right kind of environment that allows people to contribute, that can be heard and not feel maybe in conflict or in competition. So I'm interested, you know, when in managing that community and the dynamics of a knowledge economy, how does it function and work between this balance of maybe competition versus flat versus, hey, everyone's just trying to co-elevate and better everybody. How have you managed that uh, kind of challenge? You know, it's an interesting thing because before I made this group, if you had told me that managing and moderating a Facebook group is is something that should go on your resume or your CV, I would have laughed at you. And just literally, five minutes before I came on with you, I was telling one of my moderators, you should put your work here on your resume because he's looking for a a new job um, because it is so fundamental to HR um, in that you're dealing with all of these different personalities and you're dealing with internet culture. And somehow we've gotten the idea that if I'm sitting at a keyboard typing to you, you're not a real person. So I can be like, you suck. You're so stupid. How could you have that stupid question? You stupid, stupid poopy head or whatever. Mm -hmm. And, and like, that's just Twitter summed up right there. Right. You know, it's like, and, and people think that that's okay. It's not okay. There's a real person at the end of, of the keyboards. And so that's one of the things that we do within that group is that we don't allow personal attacks. And um, we also don't allow bad language. And it's funny because, you know, a lot of people think I'm, you know, puritanical, which admittedly I am, but um, I don't allow it. And 
it's not just that my ears are sensitive, but it's also something that can easily get out of hand. Yeah. You know, what's the difference between, between using a word to express, you know, your anger at dropping a book on your foot and then directing that same word at someone else. All of us would be like, oh, it's okay to say a bad word when we drop a book on our foot. And there's actually some research that shows that that actually helps with pain and whatever. But someone walking down the hall may hear it and think that you're talking about them. And then even though that's not the reality, their perception becomes their reality. And if they speak up and they don't resolve it, then they have a negative attitude um, toward you. And you don't know why you dropped a book on your foot. Um, um, I I I find it very, very interesting and challenging this uh, shift of how difficult it is in communications of remote working of, you know, people in, as you said, this, internet economy and you know becoming task rabbits that we lose some of the humanity behind who people are and how what you say can be read in so many different ways and the challenge of that is very real and I'm interested in terms of how have you yourself or observed any changes of how people communicate and adapt their language or communication when it's now all via Slack, Microsoft Teams, you know, Zoom, these things to when you can understand tone, understand context, be in the aura of someone's energy. Um, How have you seen people do that well? Because I know that we struggle with it in our company. Yeah, it's a really difficult thing. And there are some companies that do it well, but a lot of companies, you know, 15 months ago or whatever, when the whole world went to hell in a handbasket, um, they're just like, Hey, go home. Everybody go home. We're, we're not workers now. Yeah. And that was it. Like we're just remote. And they didn't give any instruction. They didn't create any, um, infrastructure. Um, then they didn't worry about culture. Cause it's just temporary. It's just going to be two weeks to flatten yeah. the curve. Oh, wait. <laughs> And, um, and so we, we went into this rapidly, um, you know, if you want to talk about adaptability, goodness gracious, everyone had to adapt like overnight and some companies did a great job, but most of them sucked because working remotely isn't the same as working in an office, just in a different place. Because if we're working side by side, I say, um, Hey, Ross, did you see this? And you get up and you step into my cube and we take 30 seconds, we go over it, it's solved. Now you're working remotely, I'm working remotely. I have to message you somehow, right? I can't see if you're busy. I mean, sure, we have those little things on Slack that says you're on, you're off, but it doesn't really tell me if you're busy, busy or what you're doing. Um, And then if we've worked together for years before, then we've still got that relationship. I know what you think is funny. You know what I think is funny. I know what your limits are. You know what my limits are. Now, new company, you know, here I am. I get a new job working at adaptability. Um, 
AQAI. That's me. So I'm a new hire. Never met you in person. Never met any of my coworkers in person. I've seen you on Zoom. Um, I don't know what television shows you like. Is that important? Yeah, it kind of is because it gives me an insight into you, what your limits are, that type of thing. I don't know anything about your family. And of course, asking me questions about my family when your job at interviewing me is not something you should do. Like that's irrelevant. Do I have the knowledge, skills, and ability to do the job? But if we're going to build a relationship, if I can't feel comfortable being like, oh my gosh, my kids are driving me nuts today. You know, will they ever learn to shut a cupboard door? And the answer to that is no, they never will. Um, <laughs> no, they will when they have kids. Uh, but, you know, there's just that lack of personal connection um, that companies really need to work on. And it seems so fake. Um, and I admit last week I went to a TEDx event, but it was online and they had a networking room. And what you did was you went in and it matched you with someone, just random matching. And I couldn't make myself click the button to do it which is dumb, right? Because it just seems so forced. Like, hi, I'm Suzanne and you are, you know, just, ah. Um, but those things are actually really important in building those relationships. It's important that we talk about things that aren't work related uh, because that builds us. But then on the other side, you've got to be careful because politics, both in the US where I focus my business and in the UK where you're sitting are these horrible hot button yep. nightmare of issues. I mean, this is one thing I live in Switzerland, which is like the least political country mm -hmm. on the planet. Um, we're just all about the money here. So, um, you know, it's just politics is not generally a topic of discussion in Switzerland, but in the UK and the US, it's like, yeah. in the news constantly and everybody is political and that can become very difficult within a company I say I voted for this and you say I voted for that and now we're supposed to hate each other um which doesn't make for a good business um yeah. we've reached this thing where we can't just say oh Ross voted for this I voted for that okay so crack on. yeah <laughs> yeah and that's how we need to be within a company. So you've got these other things that become very, very, very difficult to manage because of our our cultures right now. Yeah. And I think it's very difficult in terms of, as you said, understanding, okay, there's levels of busy. There's levels of, you know, humor. There's levels of, you know, there's not anything exists in just black and white. It's always on a spectrum. And without all of these other senses that we've acquired over years of our complex organisms to understand, you know, body language without really understanding it or tone without understanding it to see whether someone's excited and engaged or they're falling asleep, you know, all of these kind of things become so difficult when we're at distance. And then, as you said, it can almost come across as, uh, you know, very fake or just surface level when you attempt it, when you try to do it uh, through this, you know, bit of technology. And the reality for many people is that they have been, you know, not necessarily, um, you know, we talked about social distancing. It, it's more about physical distancing, not social distancing. We should right. still be social. And 
work, in my opinion, is more than just achieving the task or result. You know, it's how do we as humans enjoy spending time together? How are we feeling valued? How are we contributing to something that makes our own hearts sing with our values or that we're leaving something better than we found it? You know, all of these different components that make up the complexity. I want to dig in a little bit in terms of this communication challenge and where being too soft, things can fester, being too hard and it can break it, you know, and how do you balance those things that maybe being in a room, you could say, hey, Suzanne, let's go for a coffee and you can have a conversation around some of those difficult situations. And something that's always resonated with me was I was advised be ruthless in decision-making, but humane in execution. And often it's the opposite way round, is that we're so humane in the decision-making, we end up being ruthless in execution. And <laughs> the, that's really come to my forefront many times in this uh, environment that we find ourselves in, is that, okay, I need to make decisions you know, in a very almost go back 20 years to your data, bringing in some humanity into there, but be very humane in the way we execute it. But I think that's still so difficult to do and to communicate right when things aren't going well, when we're not getting a result. And uh, I'd just be fascinated of any, you know, stories or things of where you've seen organizations go through some of those difficult situations and what are maybe some of the tips or bits that can be in place for helping people communicate that or provide the right environment that that can happen well? You know, I, I love the your, your thing about make decisions. What does it make be, decisions? Be ruthless in decision making, but humane in execution and not the and, other way around. Yeah. Yes. And I, I like that a lot. Um, especially in this past year or so, companies have had to make a lot of ruthless decisions. Um, a lot of companies have shut down large parts of their operations, have had to lay people off, have had to furlough people, um, <clears throat> and then have had to make massive changes with the people that are, are left. And, you know, you think about even, even businesses that got a boost with the um, with the pandemic, you know, grocery stores became the center of our universe. It was the only place you could go. There was a uh, new definition for key workers, wasn't there? You know, delivery yeah. drivers, you know, and delivery uh, drivers, yeah. all yeah. of those people, but then they have new responsibilities because suddenly you hired me as a cashier and now I've got to be the mask police. Um, you know, that's a, that's a completely different job. Um, and actually yesterday I was at the store and the cashier yelled at the person behind me to back up. I didn't know she was getting too close, but you know, and I was like, oh my gosh, who signed up for that job? She didn't sign up for that job. Um, but this was in Germany and they're incredibly strict there and she would get in trouble if she didn't make sure that we were 1.5 meters apart. Um, or two meters. I don't know what the German rule is. Anyway, <laughs> irrelevant. Um, so you've got these these things that you've got these rough decisions that that people have to make. And, you know, one of my areas of specialty, which sounds really depressing, um, but it's firing people. And I'm good at it. Um, <clears throat> not that I, I love having people and their jobs. Wasn't there a movie about that, Suzanne, with uh, George Clooney? 
Yes. And he did it all wrong. <laughs> Everything about that movie wrong. Um, except. So give, yeah. Give us the, give us the evil HR lady guide to firing people, Suzanne. First of all, you never bring in someone from the outside to fire because here you have the decision is, is ruthless, right? Mm-hmm. We got to let you go, but you want to carry it out with compassion. So that person giving the bad news needs to be the manager. Um, and it needs to be that direct manager, if at all possible, if not one level up the chain, you don't bring in an outside consultant. The outside consultant is there to support the manager, um, not to tell the news to the employee. So coming back to your story, the outsider wouldn't understand the challenges, uh, of the produce aisle with the strawberries, but you should. And so therefore they haven't got environmental context in order to deliver that information effectively, whereas the manager should have that. The manager should have that. And, you know, it should be little things like, does this employee drive to work, use public transportation or come in a carpool? If they come in a carpool, how are we going to make sure that that person gets home? Um, because if we say we're going to fire you at nine o'clock in the morning and, oh, now you're going to sit in the waiting room for your coworker that drives you to get off at five, um, that is cruel. That is beyond cruel. So we make sure we have a taxi ready and that we pay for, um, so that when you go home, um, you have a way to get there. Um, what do we know about your family situation? It doesn't change the decision. Like the decision is this Mm -hmm. person's got to go, but what do we know that we can help out to make the transition as easy as possible? Um, You know, can we give you support for filing for the unemployment benefits? Um, Can we internally help you build your resume and write it to get you a new position? That's things that that most companies don't do, but you know what you want to avoid when you fire someone? You know what the the chief goal of firing someone is? To get them to go away. And so when you do it right, when you do it with compassion, when you communicate things, when you're honest and upfront and you help them, then they go away. If you're just like, Ross, you suck fired now you're angry you're going to be like you only fired me because i'm a white male and i'm gonna sue and now i've got a lawsuit and even if it's completely unfounded i still have to hire a lawyer to defend it i've got to do all this paperwork if i instead sit down with you and go like look you've been late 47 times and your job is to open the store. So the customers can't come in until you get here. Um, This is unacceptable. You know, then you know what you're up against. And if I say like, okay, here's your unemployment paperwork. This is how you file it. This is what you need to do. You're much more likely to just go away. And it does seem like a weird thing to be like, that's my goal to get you to go away. But that's really the, that's why we, that's why we terminate people is because we don't want them there. It's a a very real and unfortunate situation of the world we're living in right now of going through massive transformations and shifts. The pandemic's accelerated this, but 
technology is displacing lots of things that, in my view, should be task redundancy, not necessarily people redundancy, and how we help them adapt and navigate to make sure they're not left behind is what's the ethical responsibility to ensure mobility of employees, whether that mobility is within the organization that they're currently in or the next organization? How do you set them up well? And it's uh, my wife works a lot with uh, elderly uh, individuals and a lot with dementia. And it makes me think of this reality that, you know, they only remember how you make them feel, not what was said, not what was going on. And I think in these very traumatic situations, you know, for many people who are facing these difficult situations, be it the manager having to deal with it to make the decision in the first place, to then a person being let go, it's all a difficult situation and it's happening at larger scales and at time scales that are almost feeling forced, but we have to do these things. And so getting them right is really important and doing it in a way that is not only right for the business, but right for the human in that ethical nature of do they, how do they get home? You know, all of these little things that we can get forgotten uh, in the humanity of the execution of it. I'd really be interested because we we have an element where we're building a piece about ethical redundancy. So the whole thing about adaption of how do we adapt to provide value in the future? What does that look like? And how do we navigate that continual ebb and flow right throughout our careers and career portfolios is what does that really look like for organizations and for individuals? And what kind of support is needed when there's a whole complex of grief, of loss, of anger, of all of these, you know, different emotions that we allow that to take place, but give it a, a, a route that they do have hope, that they can get back to a, a state where they see their future as being one that is bigger than their past. And so in those realities, when a decision's made and you look at the human side of it, um, what else, what can happen from the individual side, right? Not necessarily from the managers or the company side. If this happens to you, how do you get fired well? <laughs> you know, what, what would you give advice to that? If, you, if that's happened to you, how do you adapt and deal with that well? First of all, as, as someone who has literally fired thousands of people in my, in my career, um, I can tell you you're not alone. Um, and when I trained managers to deliver the news, I would always ask, have you ever been on the other side of the table? And more often than not, everyone's been laid off. Everyone's been fired. Like this is a normal occurrence. And so that's the first thing is if you're, like, in, if you're in work and you're employed, the chances are <laughs> that's going to be part of your life cycle and chapter of your book. It, yeah. It's going to be part of your life cycle. It happens to everyone and especially in the US which has mostly at will employment um you know it's far less likely to happen in germany where they practically have to have you know an act of god to, to terminate you but if you're working in the US you're going to get laid off at some point you are that's just it um so having that bit of a knowledge because it can feel really lonely like i'm the only person out there and what happened and blah 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 the other thing is that to be a good terminated employee um, is 
you can wallow in your self-pity for a few minutes or a day, you know, sit in the corner, watch Netflix, eat a whole Netflix, get the ice cream bucket, (laughs) stay under the duvet, have a moment. Yeah, absolutely. But give yourself a time limit. And then you have to take control of your life. Was it a really stupid decision to fire you? It's possible. Companies make mistakes all of the time, all the time. They fire the wrong person all the time. Does that change your situation? No, it doesn't. It really doesn't. Like you're gone. All right. Um, You know, and you can argue and you can sue and maybe you can win your job back. Do you really want to win a job back with someone that just got rid of you? You probably don't. Um, I mean, I know that there are some exceptions if you're in a place with a pension and blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Yeah. Every situation is, is different for sure. But you've got to deal with the reality that you've been handed. And so then you either decide, do I want to be angry or do I want to move forward? Because you can't move forward if you're angry and if you're blaming someone else. And so if you were, if you were laid off because of uh, the lack of work, and, and certainly we had millions and millions of people who lost their job due to COVID. We as a society all acknowledge that's not your fault. You know, you worked in a hotel in a resort town it's not your fault. Like, just it's not, it's not your fault. Um, if you got laid off in a grocery store, it probably was your fault. And maybe, <laughs> maybe. analyze what you could do better. Yeah. Um, but regardless, you need to sit down and think about what can I do to find someplace better, something that fits my skills and really, really think about what you can do and really take that time to develop your your resume or your CV to make it as attractive as possible to the types of jobs that you want to get. And also look at it as an opportunity to get your, um, to, to make those changes. Like so many people have told me, oh, I was miserable. And this was just the kick in the butt that I needed. And I mean, I have the same experience when I started out um, writing my first client was CBS news. And, um, and I had them as a client and then I had one other small client, but they were two thirds of my income Mm -hmm. and they let me go. And it was a dumb decision on their part because I'm fabulous, but <laughs> they, they, they got rid of a whole bunch of freelancers all on one day. And after our editor fired us all, then they called her in and fired her. Um, horrible, horrible, horrible. If they'd asked me to consult on that, I wouldn't have done it that way, um, which they should have, but they didn't. And at that point, I realized I've put all of my eggs in one basket here and now I don't have very much income and this sucks and so at that point I was like okay I have to reinvent myself I have to do this and that's led me on the path that I am now where I make a good deal of my um, income giving webinars I make a good deal doing career coaching and and um, revising people's rep resumes and 
I do a lot of these other things because I realized, you know what, I need to have my eggs in different baskets. I'm not telling you that everybody has to build their own job with a variety of gig employment, but it gave me that kick in the pants that I needed to be like, I have more than one dream. I'm going to go chase this. Um, I was coaching a woman who got laid off as a teacher. And when she was like, I never thought I'd get laid off as a teacher. Um, but she did. And she's like, I, I just never, I thought that this would be my job till I retired. And I just, she was not prepared at all. Um, and so I was like, well, you know, I know your priorities to find another teaching job, but, um, let's go over your other opportunities. And she just emailed me and she's like, I'm so grateful. I never thought that there was anything outside of teaching for me. And now I have a job writing curriculum for an online school thing. She's like, fantastic. Cause that allows me to work at home, which is what I wanted. She would have never gone searching for that. Yeah. Never. I, I think that's a really key point for everyone is to think about, you know, just the balance of two different words, two or four. So when something happens, has it happened to us or has it happened for us? And our framing in that can shift to then think, as, as you said, we have an exercise that we do about doors closed and doors opened, about building both resilience and how to unlearn things. And if our identity has been so linked to a particular job, a particular career, it's kind of the second thing we ask somebody after, oh, so Suzanne, what's your name? So what do you do? You know, right. it's, it's, it's what we do. If you had a clicked on the networking button, you know, right. I'm sure you'd have been asked. So, so what do you do? So we have this inbuilt sense of, ah, that's what I did. So that's what I need to continue doing because it's part of my identity. And if I'm in that room, I just see those doors that have closed of that particular role. And I just want to go back in through those doors because that's who I am. And that's where I belong is on the other side of it. Having that chance to see that that was for us to reflect, to reimagine and realize there's 10 other doors on the three other route, other walls that could be reimagined and redesigned for what our next chapter is in our career and our future selves to reinvent, you know, from a teacher to someone who's involved in education in a different way around creating curriculum or for everyone to be given the space and permission to reimagine. And that's hard when we're in a state of fear and survival. So it's, for, for, for me, I think I'd be interested whilst you, you said a great piece of advice, Suzanne, of give yourself a timeline of the wallowing, you know, when you're on the Netflix and behind the duvet, equally give yourself space and time for reflecting. No pressure and creativity that you might have the pressure, the bills of all your responsibilities of your family of these things take moments where you can remove that from your mind to imagine what would I really like to be doing? And for many, that's a hard thing to do. And having people like you that can coach them through it, that can ask great questions, that can relook at their CV to connect dots that they might not even see to what might be possible. What would I do if I could choose what I wanted to do? And I think that gets lost for a lot of people is we have career coaching, maybe at college and university, but then that's kind of it. It's then development, not necessarily career coaching in terms of, well, which one do you want now? You've had a go at that one. Let's have a go at another one. Try that on. 
and I, I'm just fascinating as we come up to the final piece of, you know, what could people start doing in the, you know, environment that we're now living in where exponential technologies are coming, COVID's not going away. There's all of this uncertainty. There's volatility of what's going on. How can we practically manage our routines or ourselves to have a career that's great, you know, uh, to be good at what we do and what we want to do? What are some of the uh, simple tips or things we could do right now or within the next week that would help us on that journey, Suzanne? The most important thing about managing your career is to recognize that nobody cares about it like you do. So many people sit there and wait for that promotion or they wait for that job to open up or they wait to be put into a high potential group at work. And it doesn't happen. And it doesn't happen because managers are horrible. It It doesn't happen because managers are busy and they're not focused on you and your success. You have to take control of that. And so the first thing is to say to yourself, I am in control. And there are plenty of things you can't control. That that's absolutely true. But you're in control of you and you have control of how you you interact. And, you know, when you're saying it happens to you or for you, one of the principles um, that I actually learned from an improv class is in an improv, you say yes and, um, and not but. And so, okay, my manager is a micromanager. Okay, yes, and now what am I gonna do with that? I can do the but, oh, my manager's micromanagement, but I can't do anything. Of course you can. Okay, so you can either acknowledge this guy is not who I want to work for, um, but this company pays well. If we've got a short commute or I can work from home, um, you know, they have free lunch in the cafeteria, whatever, whatever your reason is for staying. It's a small town. I want to raise my kids here. Okay, great. Then just acknowledge that I've chosen to work for this person I don't like because I get these 47 benefits from it. That's okay. That's absolutely okay. Or you can say, my boss is a horrible micromanager. I hate working for him. And I'm going to look for a new job. Or, and I'm going to take night classes to learn a new skill. Or, and I am going to look to transfer somewhere else within the company. Just acknowledge that. This guy's horrible. I don't like working for him. But I get to control the and. Yeah. Accept, acknowledge, and then be in a state of control to how do you want to respond to that? And often we're just in reaction mode. And I don't, I don't want to hear from you today. You come to me and say, my boss is a horrible micromanager. I hate working for him. And then six months later, I'm like, Hey Ross, how it's going? My boss is a horrible micromanager. I hate working for him. I'm going to be like, well, shut up and go away. Um, because you just made that choice. You said, I'm going to stay with this guy. I'm going to stay here. I'm going to stay in this job. Okay, let's stay there. But don't come whining to me about your boss because you made that decision that what for whatever reason, it was easier to stay in this job or it gave you the schedule or it helped you with your kids, whatever. There's a million reasons to stay in a bad job. There's a million ones that are good ones. And many people are in a job they don't want. And yeah. 
they that is a decision they are making and they can make a new decision each time the sun rises as to what they want to do with that and i think that's very powerful bit of advice is to yeah it's so empowering to just be able to say okay i decided to stay here there i go or mm-hmm. I decided I want out. So these are the things I'm doing these to get out. Yeah. Here's my active things. I'm going to take that online class. I am going to hire a career coach. I am going to sit down and go over my CV. And I'm going to have my brother-in-law go over it. And I'm going to ask my friend Judy, who's really good at grammar, to go over it. You know, I'm going to yeah. do these active things to change me because if you're not doing those active things you're just wallowing in self-pity you're going to be in friction and it's what we you know these various phases of adaption from collapse and death through survival through growth through thriving and they're a cycle you know and all things whether it's a task a piece of technology a job a role a mindset a thought goes through those phases as we, you know, see value, we learn about it, we provide it, it grows, we thrive. And at some point it might not, it might take centuries or it could take just a week before it collapses and we have a rebirth of those those things. And so for people being able to, you know, it's one of the prerogatives, you know, a, a, a woman can change her mind. Well, all of us can change our minds, right? And that isn't necessarily a bad thing. You know, I was brought up to, no, no, you've got to stick with something. If you've tried it, you know, you've got to persevere. And I think the reality is that there is always balance in these things. There's areas where we do need to suck it up and have grit and, you know, be very collected in our approach to that because what we're doing matters and we accept it. It's the yes and. And we can move forward without being paralyzed or trapped. So even if it's in a, not an optimal environment, we're choosing that and we're putting uh, things around it of whether it's timing, constraints or the benefits, the list of 47 things, you know, whatever it might be around there. And I think sometimes we all need that burning platform to come along, whether that's Hey, Suzanne, you're fired, you know, um, in a uh, apprentice style finger wag, or it's a realization because we wake up one day and decide this isn't the life I want to lead and have. So whether it's internally motivated or an external event is to use that opportunity wisely and know there's going to be many of them. You know, like you said, it's going to happen often. And to, to finish off, if people want to Uh, reach out and engage with you because you know you're a very not just experienced but you have this aura of straight talking say Mm -hmm. things how they are um but do it in a way in which that is still inclusive and engaging and i think that's a real um you know value that people need when they're facing tough decisions and that they need someone who speaks with candor but also with care. Uh, and very if, kind. <laughs> if, if people you know, want to find more out, where's the best place for them to go, Suzanne? Well, um, if you Google Evil HR Lady, I will pop up. That was one advantage of choosing that. Um, that my website is evilhrlady.org. You can email me at 
evilhrlady at gmail.com. You can join my Facebook group, which is called, are you ready? <laughs> Evil HR Lady. Love it. Uh, yeah. You do have to answer the questions or we won't let you in and you have to give good answers. You can't just write, okay, because if you write that, we won't let you in because we won't let you in. Um, and, or you can follow me on Twitter where I am real evil HR lady because somebody else took evil HR lady and then they <laughs> never tweet, um, which is fine. I'm actually pleased that they don't um, because then people would think it was me and it's not. So I'm super easy to find. I'm always happy to hear from people. Um, absolutely. If you're a solo HR practitioner or even if you're an HR practitioner in a big organization, um, join the Evil HR Lady group. It's mostly US, but we're trying to get more global. Um, mm -hmm. And that's always fun because the things that we all take as obvious in our own cultures are just not. Yeah. <laughs> just not in other cultures. Yeah. Well, I uh, look forward to our next conversation. And by that, Suzanne, I want you to uh, get your red glasses back uh, <laughs> uh, for, your, for your piece because all of these things you know we we smile about evil hr lady but i i like and appreciate the reality of it doesn't have to be evil you know hr doesn't have to be called in at the last minute when everything's gone wrong when it's done well it's something that should be a joy it should be part of the path for development and my lasting impression suzanne is to be the manager of our own career Yes. that nobody cares as much as we do about our career. And that is something that I think is going to be a valuable lasting impression for people to recognize and realize wherever they are on their journey, first job to, you know, nearly their last job, whatever it may be in their phase of life, that that's an important uh, message. And I really appreciate you sharing that. Well, I was happy to do it. Thanks, Suzanne. Take care. You too. Do you have the level of adaptability to survive and thrive the rapid changes ahead? Has your resilience got more comeback than a yo-yo? Do you have the ability to unlearn in order to reskill, upskill and break through? Find out today and uncover your adaptability profile and score, your AQ. Visit aqai.io to gain your personalized report across 15 scientifically validated dimensions of adaptability. For a limited time, enter code PODCAST65 for a complimentary AQME assessment. AQAI, transforming the way people, teams and organisations navigate change. Thank you for listening to this episode of Decoding AQ. Please make sure you subscribe on your favourite podcast directory and we'd love to hear your feedback. Please do leave a review and be sure to tune in next time for more insights from our amazing guests.